Morning, New Hope family. Glad that you're here. We're going to pray for Alan and Julie and their son in just a minute as they take on that mission opportunity. I'm so thrilled that they're part of our church and that they actually are fluent in the Russian language and they're going to have an opportunity to reach into the lives of the Ukrainians. So if you did catch what they said in the midst of that video, they are out in the atrium after the service. They'd be happy to talk with you. And I want to especially pray that God would give them um, the wisdom to know how to speak into the lives of people who've lost their homes and had had to relocate into another country. So we'll pray for them, but we're going to also pray for the work that we're about to do in studying Genesis 15. And you're going to see why it applies to what we're about to do this morning. You're going to take communion, obviously. You see the tables that are here in front of you. And normally we would do that on the first of the month, but I asked specifically to have the team push it to this weekend because Genesis 15 is such a perfect match for Communion Sunday that I couldn't resist putting the two together. You're going to see why I'm describing it that way in just a minute. Let's pray together and then we'll step into the text. Father, I thank you for every single soul that's part of the service, everybody who's part of the service virtually and in person here in the auditorium. And we've sent your presence, God. I thank you that we're ushered into that through worship. Right now, we come before you and ask specifically that you would guide us as we study your word this morning. But we're also asking that you would be with Alan and, and Julie and their son, Darren, as they go overseas. And I ask, God, that you'd go before them, prepare a path for them, and give them wisdom to know how to speak into the lives of people who have just completely lost their known world that they would have the wisdom to be able to share Christ in a way that would be powerful to these individuals, but also to comfort them. So we pray that you go before them and meet the needs financially and meet the needs spiritually, Father. And we ask that in Jesus' name. But we also ask for that for ourselves this morning as we study your word, that you would give us wisdom and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would give us insight to see how this fits into our life and that you would give us application. The, the greatest application is going to come from you. So, God, I pray in this moment that you open our eyes, give us ears to understand and to hear you. In Jesus' name, we pray for this. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So there's a particular verse that always comes to mind when we think of communion. And the particular verse comes from Matthew 26. And it kind of rings in our ears because it's a repeat, a quote of Jesus' actual words on the night that, as Paul writes, that he was betrayed. Let me put those words for you up on the screen. Matthew 26, 27. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In the Greek language, is a word in your notes this morning. You'll see it on the screen. It's diatheke. And this is actually talking about a contract. So when Jesus said the new covenant, he was using this terminology saying, there's a new contract, and this contract is in my blood. In other words, it's a blood covenant or a blood contract. So if Jesus says there's a new covenant, it must be that there was an old covenant, which takes us to where we left off last week. And if you weren't here by chance or you didn't have the benefit of catching it online, let me just give you kind of a 60-second update. In Genesis 13, we saw Abram fail miserably. And his failure was in circumstances and in people and in things. Things he managed a little bit better, but circumstances not so good, people not so good. But what he did is he actually walked outside the will of God. And he fell into a deception mode where he thought he could connive and fix things his way in order to protect himself. 
And because he got into deception mode, he really caused a lot of difficulty within his own household, which led to a lot of strife, and he faced embarrassment. He, he actually was put down by Pharaoh. Pharaoh called him out as a liar and rebuked him, and then he put his own wife in incredible jeopardy. But through all that, we saw God really graciously watch over him. It, he brought him out of some very, very difficult circumstances, which led us to the conclusion that we could see very clearly as we studied that, then when we personally don't let God rule in our life, He will still accomplish His purposes. But there are consequences, and Abram experienced all kinds of consequences. Everything that he received when he was in Egypt, all those things came back to haunt him. An Egyptian female servant by the name of Hagar brought incredible division within his family. And his own nephew, Lot, began measuring things by what he saw in the big cities of Egypt. And then he began casting his own eyes towards Sodom, where he said, that's kind of like what it was in Egypt. I want to go live there. So what we discovered was this. Before God enters into this Abrahamic covenant that you're going to see this morning, He allowed a series of life lessons to come into Abram's life in order to perfect him and to refine him so that he could go to the next level with God. And Abram was absolutely going to need those lessons because he needed to walk in a way to allow him to become the great man of faith that we know him as today. He wasn't always that way. There was a point where he was a beginner. He was maturing and growing, and that's what these stories are about. So I'm going to encourage you this morning, if you get a chance later today, to read Genesis 14. Because last week we were in 13, this morning we're going to be in 15, and here's why I want you to read it. In Genesis 14, you're going to see Abram go after a set of four kings, and he's going to go to war with them by himself, taking all of his servants and engaging them in a battle. Because these kings have kidnapped Lot... They've stolen him and his family and a whole bunch of citizens from Sodom. And when Abram catches them, he captures Lot and brings him back to safety. And you'll discover as you read through chapter 14 that you're going to gain significant insight into how Abram is growing and maturing in his walk with God and trusting God. And as for Lot, we're going to get into his story in August. But that takes us now to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1. So let's dive into the text. It starts this way. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. After these things means after the battle. After he just won this very decisive battle in which he was able to bring Lot back to safety and Lot's family, he had engaged these kings of the east, and he rescued those who were captured. So we're told in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now this morning, some of you are holding your Bible in a hard copy. You've got a, a written version you're holding in your hand. Some of you have it in an electronic copy, and you're looking at it that way. Others have your copies at home, and you know that you have the word of God that has come to you in written form. But in this era, God spoke in multiple ways. He would speak through the angels he would speak through the prophets. He would speak through personal appearance. He would speak through audible voices. All of it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And in this case, he speaks audibly to Abram out loud so that Abram can hear him. Do not fear, Abram. 
You see it very specifically when he says, I'm a shield to you. Now, why would God need to say, don't be afraid? He's already won the battle. He's already beat the four kings that are in Genesis 14. He's already back to his home. Why does God have to go one step further and say, I'm a shield to you? And God's using this imagery of a battle scene where Abram has just encountered lots of battle shields. And God says, I'm a greater shield. I'm going to protect you. Well, why would he be afraid? Because Abram knows the tendency of the kings of the east is to not take defeat lightly. And they've come against these people, especially captured these citizens with a small entourage. And they carried them off, and they were going to sell them into slavery. When Abram goes to battle against them, he defeats them soundly. But what he knows is they can come back with a much, much larger army, and they can bring destruction to his household. And so God knows he's got this emotion going on of fear. God knows your emotions. He knows what you're feeling right now in this moment. God knows in that moment that Abram is feeling a sense of fear, and God has to say to him, don't worry, I'm going to be a shield to you, I'm going to protect you. God uses the word shield because Abram's expecting to be attacked, and then he uses the word, there's going to be a great reward for you. Why refer to that? Well, because there's been this forfeiture of all the plunder that was rightfully his. So his mind goes to this spoil of war thing that he's left behind, and he wouldn't take the spoils of war when he defeated these kings. Here's the background on it. All the reward that would have come to him would have been the result of capturing the people and bringing them back to Sodom. The king of Sodom has said to Abram, wow, the spoils of war are yours. You can pick from the people, take them as your servants. You can take the gold, you can take the silver. But Abram says, I don't even want a shoelace from you because I don't want it said that you made Abram wealthy. You, vile king of Sodom, are not the one who enriches me. Now, contrast that, church, with what you learned last week. Abram willingly took a lot of wealth from Pharaoh because he was less mature in his relationship with God. But he's obviously grown a lot as the years have gone by, and he doesn't want it said or any association that he's gained anything that he has from this king of Sodom. So God comes back and says, because you've honored me, Genesis 15, 1, your reward shall be very great. And God's not only speaking of material resources here, but Abram doesn't know that yet. So he's saying back to him, you've honored me. You've glorified me. You've surrendered things because of me. I'm going to more than make up for what you have given up. But there's this sense in which all of this is ringing hollow in Abram's ears. It's as though he's saying back to God, what good is this? What gain do I have from all these material things? because things aren't going well in my life. Now, I'm not sensing that he's depressed. Rather, maybe you can identify with this, I'm finding that he doesn't see a path forward. Watch Abram's response. Verse 2, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, since you have given me no offspring to me, given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. 
He's being very bold with God. Abram's being downright honest before the Lord. So instead of bottling up his feelings, he's laying them all out there. And I don't see this in a disrespectful way whatsoever. He's just coming back to God and saying, Lord, I'm so frustrated. I can't figure this out. I don't understand. Can you give me a break here? Because I can't see a path forward. It's as though he's saying back to God, what's going to happen to the promise? Yeah, I got lots of material wealth. I've got all the possessions you could ask for. But I don't know how this promise is going to be fulfilled. Now, remember, Lot, his nephew, is no longer in the picture. And all of his own relatives, they live in a distant land, the Ur of the Chaldees and Haran up in Turkey. So he naturally goes to default and says, my chief of staff, Eliezer, I'm confused, but I think you're going to have to make him the recipient. Have you, evaluate yourself right now, have you ever been that honest with God? Do you go to the point where you express the detail to God to say, this is what's going wrong, wrong, and just spell it out in detail to Him? That's exactly what you see Abram doing here. He's being very gut-level honest and saying, here's the issue, God, and I don't know what to do about it. Not a rabbit trail, but just bear with me on this. In the 1900s, there was what was known as the Boxer Rebellion. Some of you are familiar with it because you know the history of China. But in China, during the time of the Boxer Rebellion, there were a lot of Christian missionaries being executed. Up to that point, until about 1898, Christianity was really flourishing in China, and it was spreading rapidly. But those who were in power became very fearful of how Christianity was moving quickly through China. And they began cracking down. Well, the Boxer Rebellion broke out in the sense that people who were Chinese began fighting back against the Christianity that was spreading. And as a result, Christianity was seeing lots of missionaries executed, tortured. Now, the biggest mission program in China at that time had been founded by a man by the name of J. Hudson Taylor, and he founded the China Inland Mission. Well, he discovered through reports that were coming to him that had been shielded from him for a long time. By 1900, he learned that many of his friends had been tortured and executed for the name of Christ. J. Hudson Taylor came to this point where he was grieving so much, he didn't know which way to turn. And this quote comes right from a conversation that he had with a friend of his. You see this on the screen. I cannot read. I cannot think. I cannot even pray, but I can trust. This is really relational to Abram. This is the place he's at. I don't know what to do, Father. I don't even know which direction to turn. How are you going to fulfill this promise? See, you should consider yourself normal this morning, whatever normal is. You should consider yourself normal if you wonder, if you want to understand, especially in the midst of what seems God's silence. Now, in this particular case, God is going to fill in the blanks for Abram. That's what we find in verse 4. It says this, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, meaning Eliezer, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. 
And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Now, on one level, church, like how magnificent would that be? Can you imagine that the one who made the stars has invited you to do a tour of the stars with him? I'm thinking how awesome is that, that Abram can stand in the night sky and say, wow, look at what you made. On one level, absolutely, totally cool. But there's so much more going on in here. So much that I can't even get to, but I'm going to break it down in one area for you. Even though God fills in the blanks, Abram doesn't yet know that the fulfillment of this promise is still 15 years away. Like, God does not operate on our time frame, does he, church? His ways are not our ways, and his calendar is not our calendar, and we want things right now. But Abram's going to find out it's still 15 years away. He operates on a completely different schedule. But more notably than that, in verse 4, there's this cool reference. Remember, he's just invited him to look at the stars and the night sky. And we find out in the Bible that one of the many descendants that God is speaking of is the ultimate star, the bright and morning star. Look with me at Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. That's a whole nother level, right? That's very cool there that he's looking at the stars and Jesus says, I'm me. That's me. I'm I'm the bright star of the sky. And then comes this really in-depth component, and it comes out of verse 5. And this is the deep thing I wanted to drill into with you. Verse 5 says, and he took him outside and said, now. In the Hebrew language, the word is naw. If you were looking at it phonetically, it'd be N-A-W. Let me just read the verse to you again. And he took him outside and said, naw, look toward the heavens and count the stars. If you're able to do that, by the way. Naw is a really interesting term here. And it probably doesn't sound too compelling to you right at this moment because you've heard the word now all your life. Until you realize the use of this Hebrew word is extremely rare. Only four times in the Bible. Only four times in the Old Testament. And each time it's God interacting with a human. And it always refers to God preparing to do something that man cannot do beyond human comprehension. So this particular word, the way that it's used here, it's called an action intensive. God compelling someone to do something in response to what they know. So let me flesh that out with you and just give you a couple examples. I said it's only four times in the Old Testament. Here's an example of one of those, and this comes from the book of Exodus. Nah, the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. 
Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man may ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. That's something only God can do. Nah. God preparing to do something that only he can do beyond human comprehension to the degree that it bankrupts the economy of Egypt and they send all of their gold and silver out with three million people who will take on 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And Moses is elevated to the place where he's greatly esteemed among all the people. Only God could do that. That's why that word is so powerfully used here. Now, last week, previously, we saw a commitment from God, a commitment to geographical land for Abram that would be far beyond human comprehension, that God would grant such vast, rich lands to one person and all of his offspring. Well, watch this word gnaw used here. And I know this is taking a little bit of time. Just bear with me and you'll see why. Verse 14 and Genesis 13, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Nah, lift your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever, something only God could do, something beyond human comprehension. And he made this direct promise to Abram, who would become the sole patriarch of this mighty nation that would unfold in the future. To the degree, I want you to see this description that comes from the books of Kings, and it's a record of Solomon's household in his lifetime of what he managed from 1 Kings chapter 4. Judah and Israel were numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river, and by the way, that's the Euphrates River from the river to the land of the Philistines, to the border of Egypt, they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision, check this church, for one day in the palace, Solomon's provision was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. You think your grocery bill is big? Check that out. Finish it. For he had dominion over everything west of the river, from Tipsha even to Gaza. Over all the kings west of the river, he, and he had peace on all sides round about him. So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba all the days of Solomon. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Nah, now I'm about to do something beyond human comprehension. I told you there's only four times that it's mentioned in the Old Testament, well, one of the four is right here in Genesis 15. Here, God is going to do something just as extraordinary. And now, now, he brings this dimension to bear on his promise, the end of verse 5. And he said to him, lift up your eyes, Abram. Your descendants, 
They're going to be like the stars of the sky. Astronomers tell us that they've named and identified over 30,000 stars in our galaxy. I know there's probably a lot more that have names because everybody can buy a star and have a star named after them at Christmas time. But 30,000 have actually been identified and named by astronomers. Those same astronomers tell us that there's tens of billions of stars in our galaxy alone. Is God telling Abram that he's going to have tens of billions of descendants? No. What he's actually saying to him, there's going to be way too many to count. If you can count them, it goes beyond what you can comprehend, Abram. See, our God knows that you and I, He knows that we are visual. He built us. He knows that we need visual reminders. Thus, we have the elements of communion that you're about to participate in in a few minutes. You will have the visual reminder of picking up the bread and picking up the cup. For Abram, in this situation, whether Abram looks down at the dust of the ground or he looks up at the stars of the sky, he's going to have this constant visual reminder in front of him that God is dependable. He'll be able to recall the promises of God and lean into having confidence in God. That's why verse 6 says what it does. Watch. Then he believed in the Lord, and he, meaning God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. If you have your Bible open right now, you're going to want to circle this down. This is the first time the word believed occurs in the Bible. It is also the first time the word righteousness occurs in the Bible. Belief results in righteousness. That's true of you this morning. You have believed and God has reckoned it to you as righteousness. Because you believe, you need to understand then what believe really means, especially in the biblical way it's being described here. Because he believed, God reckoned it to him. You're seeing the gospel of the New Testament in the Old Testament. So the faith that Abraham is demonstrating here, the faith that's Making Abraham righteous isn't so much believing in God, because many people speak of believing in God. So the faith that he's demonstrating here isn't so much believing in God as it is believing God, and there is a difference, and you need to understand that. Because those only believing that there is a God in the sense of He exists, they're simply saying, I'm not an atheist. I might be a theist, I might be agnostic, I believe there is a God, but I don't believe God, and there is a difference there. Because a person who's simply saying, I believe God exists, is merely saying they're qualified to be a demon. All right? Sorry if that's a little harsh, but it's true. Because the Scriptures actually say this in James chapter 2, you believe that God is one, you do well, but by the way, the demons also believe and they shudder as a result of it. So there's a difference between believing God and believing that there is a God. Here's the biblical view. For an Old Testament Hebrew, especially in this particular language, the way it's being used, to believe means to lean your whole weight upon something. I know that I could get up on top of this grand piano right now and it would hold my weight. 
because it has the structure, it has the components. I believe that I could lean my whole weight upon it. And so this particular word is used, aman, and if it looks like amen to you, you're right on track because this is exactly where it comes from. This word, aman, when you use the word amen, it's saying belief, truth, I confirm that this is real. Let me amplify this for you, and I think this illustration will make sense. If I construct something through my own experience, I know what it's made of. If, if I drive the nails and I assemble the wood pieces, I understand its composition. So this cherry door that you see, and if you're online watching, I'm sorry, you can't see it right now, but there's a cherry door on the side of the, of the auditorium here. I built that door. I built that door the summer before we moved into this building. My daughter and I stayed up night and day sanding that thing. I know all the pieces of cherry. I know how they fit together. I know which ones I flipped around and put backwards to hide the knots from you so that you wouldn't see them. But I left one knot in the surface of the door just to remind me that we all have blemishes in our life. Everything is assembled a way that I understand it. I know how it's pinned together because I constructed it, meaning I have experience with it. Now, hold that thought for just a moment. When someone says to an individual in their life, you just need to believe, they're not taking into consideration that that particular person may not have any basis by which to understand that they should believe. For Abram, though, at this point in his journey, he's walked through a lot of trying circumstances to get to this point. He's tested God, and he's found God faithful over and over. He's gone through trials, and God has rescued him over and over. And he has found God time and time again to be faithful. And so he can believe God. Therefore, he can lean his weight into who God is because he knows the nature and the character of God because God has proven his faithfulness to Abram. If God has proven his faithfulness to you this morning, would you just say amen? amen? I ask you to do that for this reason. When it says Abram believed God, it's, it's literally saying, Abram said, amen, God, amen. I can lean my weight into you. I believe you. So Abram is leaning wholly into the promise of God and the God of the promise. You and I this morning, we are considered righteous not because we make promises to God, but because we believe the God of the promise and we can lean into him. So at this point, it's because Abram believed God that the Almighty follows up Abram's believing with this statement of affirmation. Watch, verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And I will tell you, church, every time I read that, it doesn't matter how many years ago or how recently, I still get goosebumps because I understand what's being communicated here. I am Yahovah. I am the one who will appear on Mount Sinai. I am the one who created the earth. I am the one who formed Adam in the garden. I am the Lord, Yahovah, who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. 
I am Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God. So God's just made this huge declaration about himself. But Abram's in this place where he's not done asking questions, and I don't take this as all that he's doubting. Rather, what we read here in this next verse is he's just asking for confirmation. That's how deep of a hole he's in. So watch. Verse 8, he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these things to him and cut them in two and laid them each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now, if you're new to church or you haven't read the Bible much, you're likely looking at this and saying, what is going on here? You're going to want to know that what you're seeing is a really ancient custom. And Abram understands exactly what God is asking. This is really familiar to the people of the Middle East. Now, remember, Abram has just asked for verification. God, how can I know? How can I know for sure because of what I'm about to take on, I want to know that this is really, really real. And he's asking for verification to know that this promise is actually going to happen. So how do we understand what's unfolding here? Well, you can tell that Abram knows exactly what God's asking him to do because God's telling Abram to get a contract ready for signing. See, that he actually went ahead and cut them in two and placed these pieces on each side opposite the other tells you that he totally understands just by the request of the animals that are being brought forward in this list. What's being described here is the cutting of a covenant. And in the English language, we use the terminology to cut a deal. A very popular American idiom, if we construct a deal that we're happy with, well, I just scored that when I cut a deal. That actually comes right from this. So when someone cut a covenant, two parties would enter into this blood contract, and they would walk between bloody carcasses that were laid out on the ground. Uh, typically, there were trenches that were dug on either side, and the blood would run into the trenches, and when they would cut the animals in two, the two parties would walk through this prepared trench, through this blood path, and they would be reciting the terms of the contract back to each other. So just picture the setting. The bloody carcasses are stacked. The trough is full of blood, and you're walking this path with an individual whom you're entering into a contract with, and you're reciting the terms of the contract. To this very day, among the Bedouin people, they still do this when a young man wants to marry a young woman. And they make them take the vows so seriously that they have to walk the blood covenant because the agreement is that if either party would break the covenant, what has happened to the animals will happen to that person, that they would be personally cut in half. And they take marriage that seriously. So the two parties in this description here are, are promising to uphold their end of the agreement. Otherwise, it will cost them their blood. This description comes from an archaeologist who found the writings of a king from Assyria. And this particular king is an extremely violent person who lived in very ancient days, but he was entering into a contract. I want you to see this quote and, and just drink in what he's describing here. 
745 BC. They discovered this a few years ago. If Matalus sins against this treaty made under the oath by the gods, then just as this spring lamb, and that's what they're using for their blood carcass, just as this spring lamb brought from its fold will not return to its fold, alas, Matalu will not return to his country. See, this particular king was so violent. His name was Ashamari, Ashamari V of Assyria. And he, he was saying, I won't give you all the description, but it's really gross if you read the rest of it. He was saying, this guy doesn't have any bigger future than what that lamb did that we already split in half. He's not going back to his own country. There won't be a country for him to go back to. Now, the nature of a blood covenant is this. It's irreversible. You can't put the lives back together. You can't reassemble the ox. And a normal blood covenant only had one animal. What you're seeing in Genesis 15 is the most solemn of the four covenants that were used. And that's why there's so many animals involved here. So Abram, he does his part and he waits for God to appear. And his understanding is that he's going to walk through the carcasses, the blood path together with God, and they're going to enter into a covenant contract together. And he waits, and he waits, and God does not appear. And we know that for sure because of what's written in verse 11. It says he had to actually chase the vultures away. It's, it went all night long for him to look at the stars. Then the next morning, he began cutting the carcasses because that's what God asked him for. Like, how long would it take you to cut an ox in half? And then how long to cut the sheep in half? And, and what's listed here would take a very long time. And it gets to the end of the day, and the heat is so intense, the vultures are circling, and he has to keep shooing the vultures away. See, up to this point, Abram has every reason to believe that he and God are going to walk through this together until verse 12. Verse 12 says, now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. So the sun is still barely on the horizon. There's still some daylight, but a whole day has gone by. He began during the night looking at the stars, and as the sun sets, this whole new realm is opening up to him. God is going to put a pyrotechnic display on like Abram has never seen before, but first, he falls into what's known as a tardama. And this Hebrew word is in your notes, but it's like a trance. Although the person that's in this tardama is fully aware, it's referred to multiple times in the Bible. It happened with King David, it happened with Job, it happened with King Saul. When God was communicating with them, they're still fully aware. You can tell Abram's fully aware because of the fear, but he's in this place of tardama. And this terror and this great darkness is upon him. And then God begins to speak audibly. And it says in verse 13, God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, meaning Egypt, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Now, just imagine with me for a moment, Moses is writing this. At least we believe Moses is the author of Genesis. 
So Moses is living after the events happened, and he's writing about these events before they happened all the way back in Genesis 15. This is like a back to the future thing. So he's in the future, he's writing about the past, about the things that are gonna happen in the future, and I'm thinking this has gotta be really messing with his mind. And then he comes to this next component because here's God's statement, verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. He lived to 175, by the way. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. I can't get into that. I'd love to get into that this morning. Time doesn't allow it. But he's, he's literally saying, I'm going to be patient with the people who live in the land of Canaan. Even though they're idol worshipers, even though they're brutal, even though their sexual behavior is aberrant, I'm going to give them time. And I'm going to give them enough time that four generations are going to go by. And then verse 17, it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. So after hours and hours and hours of waiting, and Abram's been up to his shoulders in blood, if you will, and the gory mess is all around him. Then comes this pyrotechnic display. And mind you, this is not like a general electric oven has gone floating past him, right? Okay, it says a, a, an oven and a flaming torch. There's some really powerful imagery that's going on in here. What we know is the Shekinah glory of God has appeared on the scene. And that very same pillar of fire that will lead Israel through the desert for these 40 years of wanderings is also associated with this pillar of smoke. Think of it this way. They've got these cylindrical structures that they cook in at this period of time. I'll explain that in a minute, but just look at a couple of verses that are associated with this imagery. Look with me first at Exodus 19:18. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. Or Deuteronomy 4.11, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, at the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. And it leads into this last statement that we're going to close with this morning. Verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So God cut a deal and he sealed the contract himself. And the covenant is completely unconditional because only God participated in it. Now catch the imagery the oven floating past, and the torch. The cylindrical shape of whatever size this oven was, we have no idea, but think of like a vase on steroids, really huge with a lid, that's what they would cook in, and is producing this column, this pillar of smoke, and this flaming torch, like the torch you see associated with Jesus in the book of Revelation. These two are passing through. I read commentators who said, you can tell right away that the torch is Jesus and the, the smoking oven is God the Father. Well, I don't know, that's a, that's a bit of a stretch. I don't know how to I prove that actually, but I'll, I'll go with the imagery, but here's what I do know. What I do know is if Abram represents himself in this contract, 
it will cost his descendants' blood and his own blood if they violate the contract. And they will over and over and over and over and over and over and over. You getting tired of over yet? For generations. They will break their commitment to God. But with God being both parties, it will cost his blood. He's the one signing the contract. It will cost his blood if Abram's descendants failed to keep the covenant. So while Abram watches from the sidelines, the covenant is signed and sealed. Abram never signs the covenant. Why? Because he's not capable. God has to sign and seal it for both. Are you, question, are you capable of saving yourself? No, we absolutely cannot. It requires the blood of Jesus, the work of God to save us. We can't save ourselves. So we have to lean fully and put our faith completely into God. We have to amen God that He can bring this about. Because the certainty of the covenant that God makes Himself is based on who God is, on His capacity. Not on my capacity, not on your capacity. Communion is that reminder. We can't do this. Jesus did it for us. So God invokes the blood penalty upon himself. In the Old Testament, you see it in the Abrahamic covenant. And in the New Testament, you see it in the new covenant that Jesus invokes. So look with me again at Matthew 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, the new covenant, church, the new covenant, new hope, is established by God the Son, and God the Son is dependable whether or not individuals accept the contract. Individuals will hear about the contract and they will reject it and say, I'm not interested. But for those who do, for those who do agree to this contract, for those who do amen God, who put their faith into Jesus, they're entering into an eternal covenant with God in which he promises you're going to receive eternal salvation one day and you're gonna get heaven. That is your destiny. God promised it. That's the contract Jesus enters into for us. I agree. Yay, God. So he did gnaw what man could not do beyond comprehension. So when we come to the table in just a few minutes, we come to the table with this visual reminder because God knows we're visual and says, here, these elements, these are going to remind you of exactly what it cost me. So in keeping with our tradition, let me read these instructions to you that Paul wrote for the church. This is for the benefit of those who believe in Jesus. Verse 23 of chapter 11 in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, He took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, which tells you He's coming again. That's the commitment. So Paul says this is such a huge deal. There's nothing bigger than this. You better not take it lightly. And so we get the warning in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The whole reason we allow the time to examine yourself here in the service is if you're new to New Hope, we always take a few minutes just for you to examine yourself before you come up to the table and pick up the elements, is to do exactly what Scripture commands you to do, to make sure you're not treating this lightly, that if you've got an issue in your life that you need to confess before the Father regarding your behavior, do it in the quietness of your seat right now. And I would tell you, if you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, you can receive Jesus as your Savior right now in this moment. You can come before Him and say, Father, I, I know who Jesus is. I need forgiveness. I need Him to be my Savior. Whisper it up to Him. Forgive me of my sins. I want to believe. If you need to know more about that, I would be thrilled. Staff will be thrilled to talk with you. We'll be in the prayer room after the service. But for those who are already in relationship with God, examine yourself, come to the table, pick up the elements, take them back to your seat, and I'll talk you through the rest. Now, just a reminder, there's tables in the back of the atrium and here in the front, and take your time. Take whatever time you need to. This time is for you to examine yourself.